And now, it's time for the Techie U Drive at 5. Let's do this. Well, all right, all right, all right. You have found it. This is the Techie U Drive at 5. I am your host, Dan Taylor. And we are the Heath Bars you're looking for. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. It's not every day you get a common magic person on your show. And by common magic, I do mean Sarah Drinkwater, who is a newly announced solo GP fund person, investor. That's the whole point with solo person, right? So a solo GP person. Uh, She has generously agreed to sit in with us and give us the dish. Robin is off in... uh, I said Bulgaria somewhere. Yeah, it's somewhere. Who knows where Robin is? And Kate is in Ireland, which I find ironic that Fiona's in Tallinn and Kate's in Dublin. But anyway, I digest. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Well, let's get right into it. Let's set the stage. I know what a solo GP is. Nick knows what a solo GP is. But I guarantee you, listener number 5872273, yes, I see you on those Spotify stats every week, does not know what a solo GP fund is. What is a solo GP fund? Yeah, it's it's a trend that I was tracking a lot when I lived in California. I came back about 18 months ago. A solo GP fund, you know, a traditional VC firm has a partnership. They have a couple of individuals that together make investment decisions. Collectively, they go and raise money. A solo GP fund is very much what it says on the tin. It's one person that raises money. It's one person that makes investments. So you get the kind of speed of an angel and the access to a particular person, but hopefully a bit less structure. So the idea is that smaller scale funds, faster decisions, more access to that one person, a bit less formality overall. So in other words, at an after party at four in the morning, you're completely sober. They're completely sober. You could theoretically sign a term sheet right then and there and be off and running. Theoretically, as a newly minted solo GP, I will look forward to that experience. (laughs) Theoretically. But as a seasoned angel, don't tell me that's never happened. I mean, as an angel, you're yellowing into stuff the whole time, right? Because, you know, you can do things that are intellectually interesting. You can sign the same day. You know, as as a new VC, I'm still learning the, the ropes of like... What's yeah. a great, what, what traditions do I keep? What traditions do I change? Right. Hang on a second, because I do want to get into that new VC, but not really, but sort of, but not with the background to think. So our good friends at Sifted reported the news this week. You, you've raised uh, a third of a 10 million pound target fund. And then over the next few years, you are aiming to back 30 to 35 startups in Europe and the US, ideally in the first or second round. So I'm going to say pre-seed and seed. Right. Check size is going to be, according to the post, it's 100 pounds or 150,000 pounds. I mean, I've got a wide range. No, that's a good point. That's definitely definitely a typo and I will go with that Hey, kid, here's 100 bucks. Don't spend it all in one place. (laughs) Be thoughtful with your burn on that money. Very much, very much. And this is the one that, that really stuck out to me. And when I shot this over to Nick, like all the bells and whistles went off for him. You will be focusing on, quote, products with community at their core. Yes. W- what does that mean? Yeah, you know, I, I wrote a post about this last year. I, I can't work out. Did I invent this phrase or did I hear it somewhere and it lodged in my head? If you invented it, let me know. I want to credit you. Um, I guess I've been a, I've been a operator in startups and in big tech for a long time. And I've always built communities lodged within product and engineering teams. And to my mind, if we look at a lot of my favorite European companies, you know, I'm thinking of like Hugging Face, Unity, Monzo, so rare. In nearly every case, they're working in quite different fields, but they've got this one thing in common. They have this community, you know, folks that 
are using their product, connecting to each other, making money on their product. Let me just turn my WhatsApp off. Um, and that's the kind of company that as an angel, I ended up investing more and more in and realizing, looking backwards, I basically built this thesis by mistake where I was like, okay, I've got a really strong belief in this mechanism of company building. I'm not a massive fan of adverts. I really believe in clear brand, clear communication, you know, holding others up, you know, enabling others to make money on your platform. That's just the kind of, that's the, that's the way that I see the world. Mm. Um, and those are the kind of companies that I love and want to back. And when I began working as an angel, I realized over time, I was just seeing so many companies that were coming to me in spaces that I'd never thought about. So like I have one company in bio, the first fun check that I've written is a developer tool. I wouldn't have looked at those companies when I first started out as an, as an angel because I didn't think I knew anything. I didn't think I knew enough about them. But I'm realizing the mechanism of building communities, you know, Nick, Nick knows this really well. There's a certain playbook that you can use in a variety of areas. And to my mind, there was space for a fund in Europe that was operationally useful, small scale, speedy, efficient, and had the kind of background that I have and the kind of advisor network that I have around me. Let's talk about that that background. We all see these VCs and we all see the Oxford and the Harvard and the, you know, and the lineage and it goes on and on. And on. But you, uh, I dug way deep into your uh, LinkedIn profile. I won't comment on that first job you had. I mean, the McDonald's thing, we won't. Actually, what was your first job? Um, I worked in a clothing shop when I was 14 uh, that exclusively made really frilly clothes to a mostly male audience. I, w- I lived in the country in the UK Wait and it took me so long to work out the men coming in, trying on stuff for their wives actually were buying stuff for themselves. I just didn't, you know, it was a great first job. This is honestly turning out to be the greatest episode we've ever recorded. <laughs> okay. But other than selling frilly knickers to uh, English businessmen, you <laughs> have done stints at The Guardian, The Independent. You've done freelance work at The Times, Channel 4 Food, Yum, uh, Condé Nast Traveler, many, many others. And in 2011, uh, I mean, come on, let's flex this, shall we? You were the first non-U.S. community hire at the Googles. And then from 2014 to 2018, you ran Google Campus London. Uh, 2014, yeah, that was the good time, pre-Brexit. Like, that that was good times. Does this background give you, are you able to see things in ways that other traditional VCs, I'm doing big air quotes now, traditional VCs don't? Yeah, I think so. I think, um, you know, if VCs are obsessed with this idea of alpha, you know, seeing things others don't. And I think ideally for any great VC scene, you want all kinds of VCs with very different backgrounds. But I've just come back from Superventure and um, my first time going to this Berlin conference where VCs go to raise money. So it's like the micro funds like me are raising money from the larger funds and the larger funds are there to raise money. It's fun to watch them grovel, isn't it? Well, I was at an event with 40 people (laughs) and there were... 38 people wearing like ironed white or blue shirts <laughs> and I was the only one wearing trainers and so I think to be to have my kind of background and there's a lot that's not on my LinkedIn by the way because I did a lot in my 20s and 30s that just it sounds too crazy to be put in one place you know I had a theater company at one point you know got signed to a tv agent um I think I think it really is all about difference but it has to both be seeing things differently but also able to play the game enough to raise the money um and I think what I found fundraising is in the same way that I'll be the good partner for certain founders of startups and not a good partner for others. Same with LPs. Like some folks love my background and really get it. Other folks look at it and they're like, oh, bit weird. And that's fine. You know, there's a match for everybody. I think it's really about, you know, creating a European scene where we have a little bit more. You know, if I look at the funding scene in the Bay Area where I used to live, there are so many small funds and so much choice. 
it gives founders a lot more power. And if you look at Europe, you still have a scene that's evolving. It's still quite conservative. And so I think founders over here often are taking money from folks that do have pure consulting backgrounds, pure Oxbridge mm. backgrounds. And, you know, I think it really is about helping founders find the right capital for their company and the right partners for that journey. Speaking of raising, Fiona, I'm going to hand this over to you. I know this is one of your hot topic questions. Hi, Sarah. Um, thanks for joining us. This is really interesting so far. What I'm wondering is, because we keep getting press releases in and, you know, they're saying that such and such has raised X amount despite the tough funding conditions, yet we're still covering big rounds and still covering the closing of big funds. So can you tell us what the funding landscape is like at the moment for you, in your opinion? I do think there will always be money for great companies um, up and down the stack. Um, Who defines what great looks like is longer conversation. I think for me and my fundraise, I knew it would be hard going in. I think it's always hard to raise a first fund. It should be. Um, you know, to be a solo GP harder in Europe because there aren't enough of them, to have my background harder. Um, at the same time, I think what you're looking for is, you know, I think any fund launching now, and I'll focus mostly on funds because, you know, obviously I can talk about my startups fundraising right now too. As a fund, you're telling a particular story. Um, I think it's very hard to launch a generalist fund that's European agnostic at this moment in time because there are so many of them. You know, it's like if you're not seed camp, who 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 care? You know, you have to be at that quality bar. And so, I think what I'm seeing with my companies that are raising right now, there are definitely sectors that are more fashionable than others. Anything touching on AI is on fire. But I have other companies with incredible growth stats. You know, 90% month on month growth in like um, ones in fintech and ones in health tech, and they're both they're both raising right now. I think they'll get there. But I think it will either take them longer or they'll raise a bit less than they originally wanted. So I think there are always, you know, things in vogue, you know, like crypto 18 months ago, you basically could raise three or four million with basically anything. Um, you know, and the same with funds, a lot of funds raised in 2021, 2022 at a very different point in the market. And, you know, when you're raising, you're saying, I'll raise X and I will get to X. You know, I deliberately went small with my funds. I like small funds. I prefer small funds. Um, you know, hopefully the investments I make will justify my existence in the market, but ultimately that's up for founders to kind of decide. You know, this is the whole joy of, the, of, of I think VCs forget the whole time it's reciprocal. Yeah. Founders choose you as much as you choose them. Yeah. So you already, um, like Dan has already said that you have like the first close, a third of their proposed uh, 10 million pounds. So you're a third of the way there. Um, what are the conversations like that you're having with LPs um, when you're asking them to commit with the funds? Can you give us some insight to maybe what they're asking, what they're, what assurances they're looking for? Yeah, I think um, what I've mostly heard in terms of fundraising, you know, it's a marmite thesis. Some folks love it, some folks hate it. And that's great for me because it means if they don't really understand what I'm talking about, we don't really have, you know, there's no point in us talking. I think what I've mostly heard from LPs so far is sophisticated investors think long-term. Yes, the market is down right now, but they believe that small funds launching now, this will, this will actually be an incredible year because valuations are a bit lower and there are still lots of great companies and it's a bit less crowded a space in terms of first rounds. Um, you know, I've definitely, I've definitely heard from other folks, you know, that they believe in the thesis, they believe in the next wave of kind of solo GPs, you know, if you look at Europe, you've had Tiny who've been around for a long time. Um, you know, you've got other great micro funds like Cocoa, for example, MP Hard in Amsterdam. Um, you know, 
forward in Berlin, there are these sort of particular funds popping up where they're usually able to sneak into really great rounds with a certain size check, be operationally useful in a certain way. And I think some of the LPs I'm talking to just really see the rise of that trend in a way others don't, but it depends. You know, the LPs I'm targeting are kind of a mix. I particularly love operators and founders because they, you know, they tend to be too busy to invest check by check at first round, but at the same time, they bring a really particular normally a skill set, a geography, a way of seeing the world. Um, you know, a company, the the first check I've written in the fund, which I can't talk about just yet, <laughs> um, one of my LPs helped me with the diligence for that and basically found me a very particular type of person to help me do diligence. You know, that was one text. And so I think for me, um, if we're talking about communities, I want to be in community with this group too. Uh, you know, we win together and ultimately my success is their success, very clearly financially. And then my startup success is my success. So there's kind of a reason for us all to be married together, I guess. It sounds like you're really hitting a bit of a sweet spot at the moment. And another sweet spot, which I'm hoping becomes more of a sweet spot, is um, I read in the Sifted article that Dan mentioned um, that you are on the lookout for founders who are underestimated and underrepresented in their field. Can you expand on what you were talking about there? I tend to think a lot of the ways that we talk about diversity can be quite crude. Sometimes I'm going to choose my words carefully here. I think if you're a female solo investor, you always get asked about this and you have to have an answer. Yeah. Um, I don't believe in quotas or tokens. I want to be the best, not the best woman, but the best. And I, th I feel the same about my founders as well. You know, I will invest in the best founders I meet, but I have a particular bias for folks that are, you know, that try really hard and have absolute grit. Uh, and I've tended to observe, um, and this is just my personal, you know, view. Um, when I meet founders that have these really conventional backgrounds, you know, like dads of parents well off, Oxbridge, Stanford, they don't try that hard. Um, the founders that I work with that have tried the hardest have super weird backgrounds. Um, you know, they may have come from very little, they've failed before. You know, this is kind of my background in some ways and I've, I've worked to get in the room. And I've had to work hard to get in the room. And I just think that data point for me, you know, whether it's a white working class guy who happens to be gay, whether it's a black woman who, ha you know, like I, I'm agnostic about all of those things. I think it's more when we think about founder profiles, you know, I, I tend to look for um, a founder where it makes sense, the problem they're solving. There's, there has to be like a, a very clear connection, whether past work history or emotional connection to the problem. Um I look for folks that have massive chips on their shoulder because that's me as well. Like, you know, like if you're going to do this for the next five years, you better be ready for it. Yeah. Um, and I think what powered me through, you know, I started raising at the end of last year when it was, you know, January, 2023, nobody said yes. I basically pitched 50 hours. When I lost saw Nick, I had an eye infection because I've been pitching for like 50 hours a week. Nobody said yes. Uh, you know, I'd left this like quite well-paid secure job back home. I had all these offers of jobs, but I kept being like, no, this is the thing I really want to do. Um, and I think it's quite good for VCs to have like a sliver of the experience founders go through. So I guess in conclusion, I don't ever, you know, this always gets read when I see that in print. It always gets interpreted as diverse founders yeah, in like okay. very clear definitions. But the kind of founders that I like, yeah, maybe they're an ex-journalist. Maybe their dad was an electrician. Um, maybe they fled as a refugee from a country. I just think there are lots of ways of thinking about that. But I want to know that your personal story tells me that this is the thing. And I want to know that you're going to be all in. I do not want you doing this as, as some kind of lifestyle. And I just think a lot of those classic founders, their stakes are very low if they fail. 
and I want to I want to back people where the stakes are high if they fail because that to my mind that means they'll be all in. Well, I am all for a grafter backing grafters because that sounds exactly what you're doing here, which is great. Um, I do. Sorry, my last question. I'm full of questions today. Um, I do want to go back to um when you were talking about uh, communities at their core, and I. I'm a big fan of an Irish company called Jim Plus Coffee, who has grown oh. as a startup through their community. And we've actually mentioned a few uh, lately on Tech.eu about um, building as a community and building your brand and, and having the community have a voice in that. But what I do want to ask is, in your experience, what are some of the pitfalls that founders should consider when they are involving the community in the building of their companies yeah i think um there's a couple of obvious ones especially at pre-seed i think firstly is starting something you can't maintain um you know so if i think about you know community is such a broad word but if i think about great examples you know i've i've worked on communities i've built communities going from no members to kind of 30 million monthly active which is quite mad to have that scale if I think about like golden pitfalls, I think firstly is starting too early. So starting when, you know, most communities have like an anchoring belief, mission, identity. They have a thing in common. Yeah. Like this WhatsApp group that Nick and I are in, people that came to this generative AI hackathon in Amsterdam that Nick that Nick emceed at and I was I coached at. Um, you know, we all had this really strong shared experience. And we come together to talk about not the hackathon, but like AI news. Who's doing cool stuff? Um, you know, there's a reason for us to be together. So that's the first thing is don't start it too early. I think secondly, you know, in this in this WhatsApp as an example, the organizers are not nudging the conversation. It's happening organically. So if you can't maintain that, if you can't be in there nudging, don't start it. And I think thirdly, you know, one of my LPs is David Singleton, who's the CTO of Stripe, who's amazing. And um, at Stripe, the reason, you know, he, he and I worked together at Google early on, so I knew that he was amazing, but also I, Stripe really appealed to me in a couple of ways. Because when they launch new products, they create a side community. Um, he's spoken about this a few times, but you know, when they were launching their billings product, they put 30 customers into a chat and they didn't release the product until that group loved it. But it's active work. When you're surfacing product feedback in that kind of way, it's active work and tension between what your lead PM thinks is the right thing to do versus what your customers are telling you to do. Yeah. And it's kind of your job to work out, is this exactly the right customer? Are there loads more customers like this? And how do I feel about building this product? If you're Stripe, you can afford to launch a product that perhaps isn't your pride and joy. But I think if you're an early founder, you both want to not assume, you know, what the customer or community member thinks, while also not building something that isn't what you want to, you know, if the customer is like, I really want to be dog grooming in the metaverse. And you're like, God, I hate dog grooming in the metaverse. <laughs> you have to find a, you know, maybe, maybe the conclusion is that's not your customer. Maybe the conclusion is you want to be doing something else instead yeah. of your time. Okay, that's great advice, actually. Thanks very much. Uh, Nick, do you want to jump in on the community? I mean, I know community is, you you bleed community. I'm sure you've got some community questions here. I'm not sure that's quite the great metaphor, but yes. Bleeding community is not a good idea. No, you you, you breathe, breathe. You breathe community. Only if they smell good. Um, No, I mean. As you wish. Thanks for the opportunity, Dan, and great questions also, Fiona. Sarah, we know each other obviously a, a while. I, w- I wouldn't say, dare to say well, but but a, a while. Um, I aspire. 
I come from the other side of the uh, community, right? Building communities, but not as part of my business, so to speak. More, more, um, you know, local communities, uh, ecosystems, that kind of stuff. And so when I read your thesis, it was for me a, a complete aha moment that companies should be doing this, but also a complete sort of, but isn't this obvious? But obviously, if it was obvious, everybody would be doing it and you wouldn't have had to write that and you wouldn't be sitting where you are now getting all the attention of, hey, this is something new and interesting. Why, why do you think it's not obvious? Why haven't companies been doing this enough? Yeah, that's a, really, that's a really good. I hate it when people say good question because you nearly always know they're stalling, but that's a great <laughs> question. I started being paid to do community work in like 2009 in technology but I'd been building communities without labeling them so for like a decade by then, like club nights and stuff. You know, who doesn't love, like, who doesn't want to go to a great club night? Um, I think I think there were so many suppositions of how we built companies in the old days. And by the old days, I'm mean, even talking about 2010s, you know, running campus was absolute flow state for me. It was, you know, I was in, it was just like a really, ha- I will always look back on that time as a really happy time in my life. Um and at the same time, there were all these suppositions around, oh, read the mom test, use the lean canvas, like growth hacking, get adverts. That's how you find customers. I think um, I think community around products, I don't think it works for every company to start with. There are all kinds of companies where adverts are great, other mechanisms are great, classic marketing is great. Um, I think community building takes time. And there's just a massive tension between how fast we think companies ought to go and the active work of what it takes to nurture and nourish. And actually, I think the what's happening in the markets right now, you know, could be incredibly useful. So, so for example, if you look at um, GitHub, um, because of GitHub's longevity, it's quite, or Product Hunt is another example. You know, GitHub and Product Hunt in some ways are platforms. Well, they are platforms. Um, you can launch something new on there. And because of the longevity of their existing community, you can build reputation fast. Um, but you have to know... You know, how to launch well, who to speak to on the platform, and the basic thing has to be good. You can't launch any old shit. Sorry, I don't know if I can swear. You can't launch anything and expect <laughs> it to do well on Product Hunt because it has to be good. It has to be good. That's that's the whole point of these mechanisms. I think um, I think what's happening right now with this moment in time is companies are getting comfortable taking a little bit longer to build stuff. Um, I think they're probably pursuing other mechanisms beyond adverts to reach the right customers. And I think they're also trying to be thoughtful about what good growth looks like. There's no point in having a lot of new users if they all bounce in the first month. Um, so I think I think a lot of the trends we're seeing at this moment in time could be guiding us towards community being a thing. You know, also you've seen the tailwinds of, you know, I'm still a believer in elements of crypto, but I think you've seen a lot of the tailwinds of the cultural norms of Web3 moving outside of Web3. You know, a lot of the cultural norms of open source, you know, open source has become so much more mainstream as a concept than it was a couple of years ago. Um, And I think post-COVID and lockdown as well, you know, most of us survived that era by having our very particular, like our WhatsApp groups and our our spaces that we belonged to. So I guess... um, I think it's just an absolute convergence of many trends. Like I've been tracking this for a while, actually. Like I think anyone who's anyone who's worked in community for ages, you're a bit like, oh, this thing's getting fashionable. And something that was funny on Monday was, you know, I had something mad like 600 emails. It was really quite overwhelming. And so many folks were saying, oh, this is such a trend. And I was a bit like, that's great. But I'm always nervous about trends because trends imply um, impermanence and 
I think if we look at human history, we've we've lived in tribes and nations and in families and in, in various building blocks that look a lot like communities since time began. You know, we just haven't always thought about it in a business context, in a technology business context. Although actually, if you're a GE person, you know, I was in Berlin this week and the Mercedes-Benz campus, it's a campus. You have Mercedes-Benz kitchens. I was walking past it, quite fascinated by all the branding everywhere. For better or for worse, I'm not saying a company is a brand, but you know, there, there are all kinds of ways of thinking about communities that I think have been longstanding. I think I think classic startup land is quite new to this concept. Yeah, I, th- that's fascinating to listen to. Thank you. And um, But I just realized as you were talking, there is one thing that is perhaps not so obvious and that or not so clear is building communities hard, right? And most people don't know how to do that. Most people haven't done that. And it's not something you can just go read a book and uh, to you know, do two hours of YouTubing and start with. How do you see the, the the ability, the talent, the people, right? I mean, we know loads of community builders, but there's one thing they have in common. They're all pretty busy. Yeah, I actually think there's a massive opportunity around talent. You know, if, if you think about the product function that five years ago was a bit similar, um, you know, product is a, an interesting intangible skill set, often learned on the job, often that, that a certain kind of personality leans towards. Um, you know, I think... That's something that my portfolio companies ask me for help with a lot. You know, I've hired over 200 people with the word community in, my, in the title in various jobs. And so that's something that the portfolio companies very often ask me to help with. Um, I think there's going to be an awful lot of opportunities for kind of on-the-job training, for folks to move roles internally. Um, I think watch this space. That's something that I'm, I'm keen to work on a bit more. Sarah, we could keep on talking for about another hour and a half. Thank you for joining us. That is all the time we have today, folks. As always, my name is Dan Taylor. Yours is not. We've been joined by special lead vocalist Sarah Drinkwater this week. Fiona is on guitar. Nick Stevens on drums, bass, and trumpet. That's it for us, folks. Have a great weekend. We are out of here. Amazing.